Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 24th, 2023. We've been doing quite a few books on Orwell recently. Uh, last month, we did a show actually in August with DJ, DJ Taylor. He has a new look at George Orwell. He was Orwell's principal biographer, and he has a new biography, Orwell, The New Life. And then last month, we did a fascinating show with Anna Fanda, who has written what I've considered to be a wonderful book about um, the invisibility of Mrs. Orwell called Wifedom. And uh, just like London buses, when you don't expect them, three come at the same time. And there's a third major book out about Orwell. Um, it's not 1984, the old uh, novel, the classic that was published um, in 1948, featuring a man called Winston Smith. It's a new version of 1984, this time 1984, Julia, a novel by Sandra Newman, which reverses everything and introduces Julia, who at least in the Wikipedia page on, uh, on, on 1984 doesn't even get her own entry, Winston, Winston Smith's girlfriend is the major character. Sandra Newman is the author and she's joining us. Book's just out. Congratulations, Sandra, on the book. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Did you, uh, I assume you've, I, I think actually when I talked to Anna Fonda, she mentioned that she'd been on some panels with you. Have you read the Fonda book? I still have not read the Fonda book. I've, it's funny. Um, I think it's because that when, when there are two books like this that are coming out roughly at the same time, your publicist asks for a free copy of the book. And so you keep expecting it to be sent. But for from, some reason, Anna's publicist never sent me the book. So so I didn't buy it, if you see what I mean. So I'm still, I'm still hoping to get the free book. Oh my God! So you haven't actually. It's it's funny because if you read it, there are so many symmetries um, in your quote unquote novel on a novel, uh, 1984, Julia, and and the Thunder book. Well, we'll get to that later. Tell us about the background to this book. Why, why, and how did you write it? It's, it's, it's an official. Orwell book in a sense. It's been stamped by the foundation. So you worked with the Orwell establishment to write this. Sort of. I mean, well, really, they asked me to write it, but they didn't actually take any part in the writing of it once once that had happened. So it was sort of this process where they they were looking for somebody to write this book. The idea had been in the in the air forever, and they decided that this was finally the moment when they when they felt like for one thing. 1984 was coming out of copyrights so that anybody could write it. Um, and for another thing with the Me Too movement and, you know, the reassessment of Orwell, Orwell and his relationship to women that was going on, um, it just seemed like a moment when it would be appropriate for the book to be written and it would have the maximum impact. So they went, they asked me if I would be interested in writing it and I was immediately thrilled, as you would imagine, but also daunted. So I went away and reread 1984 and thought about it. And really, really, you know, in that first, or I'm calling it a first rereading, but it's really a second rereading for me. Um, 
but from the first moment of like getting to the two minutes hate where Julia first appears, I began to feel what the book could be and the shape it could take. And then like from, from that point, just to talk about the process, which I think is, is genuinely kind of interesting. Um, I wrote a first chapter, like I started writing the first chapter before I had even finished rereading 1984. And then I worked out like a long outline and sent it to Bill Hamilton, who's the literary agent who represents the Orwell estate and you know handles the day-to-day -day business. And he read it and really like he didn't, he had like one or two notes, but but that was about it. He wasn't really man like trying to micromanage the process at all. Um, and and honestly, like his major note, which was based about the ending, there were three possible endings that I had, and he vetoed the one that was my favorite. And I think I think like honestly he was right. It was kind of I have a tendency to go for the zaniest possible ending and and it was never gonna work. Um but apart from that, like he didn't really get involved. And then and then it was announced before it was even written and sold to publishers uh, on the basis of three chapters and an outline. So at that point, the Orwell estate no longer, I mean, they I, they couldn't really have practically withdrawn their support from it anyway, but but there was really never never any question of that. And while Bill did read the the whole book when it was finished. It wasn't with a view to deciding whether to to give it, you know, the stamp of approval. It was just because he wanted to read the book. Sandra, um, one of the things that struck me about the book was how much it sounds like Orwell. We'll get to obviously criticisms of Orwell and of Winston Smith. Uh, later in this conversation, but what did you learn in writing this book about Orwell's craft? He's, of course, very famous, not just for 1984 and Animal Farm, but also for his writing on writing itself. Did you come out of this project thinking more or less of Orwell as a writer, leaving aside the message itself? I thought, you know, it was hard for me to it was hard for me to think more of him as a writer because I was, I'm one of those people who read through all of Orwell's works by the time I was 20 years old. Um, but when I was young and read his works, the works I admired most and that were really important to me were his political nonfiction. Um, you know, his essays and books like Road to Wigan Pier and Homage to Catalonia were really important to me then. And I, and I actually, was one of the people who underrated him as a novelist, I think. I didn't I didn't really understand what he was trying to do with the novels. And I thought that the the things that were missing from them were mistakes. And I think like rereading 1984 intensively over and over and over again, um, I came to see that, you know, like inevitably with any novel, you have to make choices and there are things that can't be in the novel. Um, and so like the characters to a large degree in 1984 are a bit two-dimensional, which is something that I tend not to like in a novel, but it's also just a feature of satire and it's an in inevitable feature of satire and that's how you make a satire work. So, so he's constructing a certain kind of engine, I guess, and it's not always the kind of engine that, that looks pretty to me or that is necessarily doing what I most want 
an engine to do. This metaphor is getting a little out of hand. But anyway, um, it does what it's what it's meant to do, and it's really powerful for that. And the things that you that people reread over and over and over again in 1984, like largely um, the speech the speech of O'Brien at the end, and a lot of the things that we quote from 1984 are just like they feel like straightforward nonfiction. Um, but the novel around it actually is really effective at carrying that material. Um, so, so one thing that I found and that really made me appreciate the power of the novel is that in writing my novel, the characters were already there and you could imagine lives for them very easily. It wasn't, you know, people, people often say that Julia is a thin character, but I think of her more as a character who only barely breaks the surface, but there is a real person under there. And she feels alive and real in her scenes with Winston to me, like having having really thought about it, like even though sometimes her character seems contradictory and she does things that seem to really not make sense, she feels like a person and you wonder why she would do those things, or I, I do now, like wonder why she would do those things rather than thinking, oh, Orwell, just fuck this up. Did he fuck it up? No, <laughs> like basically, I mean, to be fair, like I don't think there's, a no novels are long and they all have mistakes in them. There isn't a, a single novel that doesn't have flaws. So so I'm not saying that Orwell didn't make didn't make any mistakes or, or have any things that, you know, that were hard to work with because they, they don't work in the original. But, but by and large, like the novel is like just much more successful as a novel than I thought it was when yeah. I was a person. I agree. And when you reread some of these other dystopian books from the 20th century, particularly Brave New World, which now reads like sort of a childish parody of a dystopia, it's amazing yeah. how well Orwell stands up. Is that in the way in which you, so to speak, Sandra, put on Orwell's literary clothing and you wrote like him, and yet you're also in because of the narrative, because you're making Julia the center of the story, uh, and you're transforming Winston Smith, or at least our perception of Winston Smith, you're also, in a sense, writing against Orwell. Is there any contradiction there in, 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 in sounding like Orwell, but having, in, in, in another way, an anti-Orwellian message? I don't think so. I mean, I don't I just, mean that critically. I mean, no, it's just no, no. interesting. It's, it's an interesting question because it's um, it kind of is a, it kind of is about like exactly what I'm doing in the book is trying to have a conversation with Orwell and a conversation doesn't have to just involve two people agreeing with each other throughout the entire conversation. Like I think the most interesting conversations are the ones where there's some kinship and there's there's a basis for understanding and you know important things are agreed upon and we're trying to to hammer out the ways in which we don't understand each other's point of view or we profoundly disagree with each other's point of view so that's how i see it i, I see it as a conversation and a conversation that is sometimes adversarial but which remains respectful throughout a conversation with all well, one of the things that comes out of the the funder book and, and i think you're gonna read it with an enormous fascination is how Orwell looked at you. He had the deepest of blue eyes, according to Anna Fonder. He was, in a sense, I guess, a womanizer, at least in his early days before he met his wife. Um, what do you think Orwell would have made of this book? 
You know, I, I just really have no idea. And I, I mean, one of the reasons I have no idea is that he wrote very little about women. And as far as I've been able to determine, he wrote not at all about feminism, even though it was, I mean, I'm not going to say it was important in his life, but it was important in his mother's life, for instance, you know, he and he knew very intellectually engaged and politically engaged women all his life, married two of them, you know, it was, he was close to, to women in a way that would make it seem as if it was impossible for him not to engage with feminism, but he doesn't seem to actually have written about it. And I find that, and that sort of, that's, is a sort of a limitation on my understanding of how he would react to this. I do think that, um, yeah, I, do, I really don't know. I really don't know. We'll have to have him on the show. Yeah. Um, Sandra Newman is the author of Julia, a novel, which is, maybe one way of thinking of it, turning 1984 upside down, or maybe turning it the right way up. It's a fascinating new book and a fascinating project. Uh, Sandra, let's get into the book. Um, we've, we've talked around it a little bit. Tell me who Julia is, your Julia, the Julia that you, I guess, invent in this novel, the Julia that you take out of Orwell's 1984 and make her the central character. Well, Julia, in 1984, Orwell's Julia, which is, I think, I think also my Julia, she's, she's sort of, in, in many ways, the antithesis of Winston Smith. Um, he's partly representing her as of a different generation, of a younger generation that has grown up never knowing any world other than the world of Oceania and Big Brother. And so she's a native here and she knows how to live in this world. She's able to buy things on the black market. She's able to sneak around and have love affairs. She takes things for granted and laughs at them. I mean, she, she, unlike Winston, Winston, when he's in the midst of the two minutes hate, is swept up in it and finds it impossible not to feel the rage that he's supposed to feel. And Julia struggles with laughing at the people screaming all around her. Um, so, so she is, in a way, like as, as Orwell says, as Winston says about her, less affected by it all than he is. Um, and Winston says it's because she doesn't understand it. So one place where, where I deviate from that, I, I feel that she does understand it well enough for her own purposes. She, she, she understands it on a kind of a deeper level than Winston. She understands it in the way that people understand things that they can work with and that they work with naturally. And so that, that means like she's more able to reproduce the slogan. She's more able to seem like a good party member. Um, and in a way, she is a good party member because a good party member in a totalitarian state also knows how to give bribes, also knows how to like get life done in the in the corners, in the cracks, out of sight. So that that's how I see her. And she's also like a very kind of earthy physical person. This also is from Orwell. Winston accuses her of only being a revolutionary below the waist, um, which I think is unfair. But I think she she's definitely a revolutionary below the waist. She's definitely like physically essentially a revolutionary. She's someone who experiences life and, you know, loves good food and loves sex and doesn't feel ashamed of it. Um, so, so like, I think like that figure of a woman who is like extremely physical, like extremely able to, to like break rules and take risks and have sex with a lot of different people without worrying about it is actually in a way like it's a more interesting 
place to enter the, the totalitarian society than Winston Smith. Not like, I think that Orwell made that choice for a very good reason. Like he's, he's writing a utopia, which means that you have a stand in for the reader who's a bit of an outsider in the society and is against it. And, you know, and therefore notices things about it rather than taking them for granted and not talking about them. That's like a classic <clears throat> place to enter this sort of political satire. But when we've already got that, I mean, I, I often say I have the advantage that in writing my book that Orwell did not have, that, that 1984 was already written. So, so a lot of things we can already take as known. Um, so when, you, when you've got that as a kind of a substrate, I think Julia is actually, well, she's certainly a lot more fun than Winston Smith. And in, in some ways she's more interesting and she goes more places. She goes to the black market. She has right. people, friends. She, you know, she goes to the anti-sex league. We get to see all these things. She has the art sem treatment, the artificial insemination treatment that the party is kind of beginning to enjoin on women. So, you know, that that kind of makes her an, a, a more, I don't know, a more mobile, I guess, point of view character than Winston, who's very much an outsider. Yeah, I guess in traditional... Christian iconography. She's the sinner and Winston is the saint. Um, I, I love the idea, um, Sandra, of you saying that she knew how to get life done. She was certainly an earthy physical figure. The, the role of sex and her sexuality is central in this, whereas Winston was the reverse, as, as, as you note in the book, a uh, rather flaccid figure, literally and otherwise. Uh, and, and it's astonishing. And again, I don't want to keep on. Uh, this is a story about this is a conversation about your book, but one of the uncanniest things is that this so much resembles what Thunder writes about in Wifedom, that his wife, Eileen, who Orwell chose to ignore and, and write out of acknowledging in any of his work, was extremely earthy. She was the one who knew how to get life done. Orwell was the saint and, 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 and Eileen was the sinner. Does it surprise you that, that in real life, your Julia uh, was like Orwell's, uh, Orwell's wife and Winston Smith was like Orwell himself? Well, I think definitely Winston, I mean, Winston Smith is like Orwell himself, obviously, by design. In some ways, Orwell is making fun of himself and the figure of Winston in a lot of places, I think. And in some places, he's just... I don't know. I think he's just inside his experience. He, when he makes Winston tubercular, as he's tubercular, and he was dying. He knew he was dying when he wrote this book. He wrote it in in Scotland. It was what a year before he died. Yeah, when he was revising it, uh, he was already like hospitalized. It's during some of that time. So yeah, he he definitely knew he was dying. He was at the beginning when he was writing it. He was hoping that he would live to write a few more books, but he knew that if it was maybe 50-50 that he would succeed in that. One of the reasons he married his last wife, Sonia, was because he needed somebody to look after him with the hope that he would be able to survive to write more books. So it's it's really like, it's, you know, one thing that I found is that no matter how I felt that Orwell was misogynistic, which I did do think he was, um, it was hard to, it was hard to really blame him for it when the image that I was constantly visited by of Orwell was somebody who was rushing to finish a book that he th 
thought was extraordinarily politically important, even though working on it all the time was killing him. Um, and just the the idea of him in that in that state still working was was really moving to me. Um, and now I've forgotten what the question was. So have I. Is, is there something um, rather male about all that self-sacrifice, dying for humanity? Not really. This was a man rather than a woman. Not really. I think that's that's pretty universal. Um, I mean, and interestingly, I think Orwell, one of the reasons Orwell was a great commentator on and, you know, really understood the psychology of totalitarianism is that it is a very totalitarian thing. Right? That's what totalitarian societies want from you. And I think the, the fact that Orwell was was drawn to that, that he had he he really felt it like you see it. A really interesting thing to read, which you can get online for free, is his review of Mein Kampf, which where he really like he zeroes in on the way that Hitler wasn't promising pleasure and happiness to his people. He was offering blood and sacrifice. And as Orwell rightly says, a lot of the time, that's what people want. You know, they they want pain and not pleasure. They want to be tested and um, punished and they want to like go through the fire and be tempered. And he understood that because he was like that. Was Julia or is Julia a political figure? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe she's an argument for the idea that we're all political figures, that human beings are political animals, whether or not they want to be. Um, in 1984, and I think in my book, at least until the very end, she sees herself as apolitical and she's trying to be apolitical. She's trying to... Winston thinks that she's not affected by the society she lives in. And she's, she sees herself that way too. She sees herself as in some way immune to it, but eventually she is forced to realize that she was never immune to it. And that she's been like a kind of a, a warped personality from the beginning and only in becoming conscious of the ways in which it's affected her, can she oppose it and be free. Um, but I, I think like her, her way of being, her way of trying to, I, I guess like from the very beginning, she's sort of opposing this, the regime just by having the life that they think she should not be able to have. And you see her like finding a, a kind of a society and a commonality and an understanding with other people who live marginal lives in the society, who manage to, you know, have have men who have relationships with men and who manage to do that in the in the kind of margins of the society and um, the the proles who are enriching themselves by buying and selling black market goods and trying to rise in in class and marry into the party and ultimately with well I, I won't go into ultimately because I'll get into spoilers but but basically, she's she's sort of living this life, which in a sense is more truly revolutionary than the life of Winston, who is consciously and deliberately trying to oppose the party and hoping to join a resistance. And she has no interest in that. But in a way, you can see her as the actual part of an actual movement that is eventually going to erode the party from within. 
We are speaking with Sandra Newman, the author of a wonderful new book, really wonderful, 1984. You've all heard that one before, but it's 1984, Julia, a retelling of George Orwell's 1984, a very different kind of retelling. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor for this show. Uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics that I think will actually love uh, Sandra's new book. Uh, we're going to run a short ad for Liberties and then we'll be back to talk about the critical reactions so far and the, the book has just come out. Very different kinds of reactions. So we'll be back with Sandra Newman in about 30 seconds. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Sandra Newman, one of America's leading novelists. She has a new book out today, 1984, Julia, a retelling of George Orwell's 1984. Um, Sandra, the book has already got a lot of coverage, a lot of response. I'm not sure if you've read all the reviews. Uh, my friend Bethan Patrick, who often is on my show, actually, but loved it so much, she thinks that you actually outclassed Orwell. The New York Times, though, was a little bit more measured, suggesting that you've ignored history, that you're writing about women as opposed to totalitarianism. What, what do you make? I, I, have you looked at the New York Times review yet? Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I read the New York Times review and the Washington Post review came out on the same day, which I think is today, and they said absolutely opposite things. Um, so, so I don't, you know, like, honestly, I want to, I want to embrace all reviews and agree with them in some way, but I actually don't understand the New York Times review. So, yeah, I, don't, I just don't see it. I think it's actually just not true. So I, I don't, I, it's one of those reviews where I feel that what, what was said was so not true of the book that I wonder what it was that the person actually didn't like about it. You know, I feel like it must be something else because that's because the book has so much, so much politics in it and <clears throat> kind of, you know, addresses. It addresses so much apart from the issue of women's existence in this world. It's about where where such revolutions come from. And, you know, it goes into there's a, a sort of, you know, addressing the Holodomor and so on and so forth. So I'm I'm kind of getting, I guess what what I'm saying is that I don't really know how to react to a review that I disagree with. I only know how to react to a review where they've noticed something about the book that you could legitimately say was a shortcoming, which does happen. Like I get I get negative reviews where I think, well, yeah, you know, that's okay, that's true. And maybe like, I wish that the person had appreciated the good things about the book instead of focusing on the negative things, but I can't deny that the thing is negative. And with th this review, I just, I just wasn't sure what was, what they were thinking. Well, I mean, my reading of the review suggests that you, you took the history out of 1984. You make it broadly about 
uh, gender, men and women, but you don't acknowledge that this is a book written directly in response to Stalin's uh, totalitarian Soviet regime. Yeah, I know, but that's what that's the problem because it's obviously it's actually it's actually if anything closer to Stalin's totalitarian regime than Orwell is. It's like that's that's the thing that I mainly wanted to do with the book was be closer to <laughs> to Stalinism and address more aspects of it. And you know, without flattering myself, I did. You know, there there are a lot of pages in the book that are a lot of pages that are devoted to that. And in other ways, yeah, I just don't, I think the, the other thing in the review that, that might have been more true, although I don't, I don't see why it's a problem, is that um, they said that the book was not really updating 1984 for our time. And I think like, it didn't, I didn't try to do that as much as, as some people might have, but I think that if you're writing about totalitarianism, now it's inevitably timely and it's kind of it's just tragically not that different from the totalitarianism like our our aspiring totalitarians are just not that different from the totalitarians of orwell's time that you would need to like expressly make well, when you say uh, our who do you mean our aspiring totalitarians oh you know modi putin i mean you could say trump as well definitely as an aspiring totalitarian so you're saying know. Modi's like Stalin, you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's more like Hitler, if anything. But but yeah, like if you... There's the same kinds of... Um, the same methods of manipulating people are being used in order to consolidate a kind of power which is, in its like ultimate logic, genocidal. Say a little bit more about that. I'm not sure everyone will be convinced. That, I don't know. We, I don't. This is not a show, and you're not an expert on Modi, and we're not talking about yeah. Modi, but, uh, the other, as you say, wannabe totalitarians around the world. They're, they're genocidal in what sense? Oh well, there's always there's always an other or a series of others who are framed as enemies. I mean, the, we get this in in Orwell and in my book. There's the two minutes hate. Um, and they're the people who are always a threat to us and a threat to the party and the, the government. And a lot of the, the political rhetoric is about these people who are enemies, who are dangerous, who are degenerate, however they're framed. And often they're of another race or they can be of another religion and they can just simply be of another political belief. And that's that's what you're you're getting with with people like Trump with Modi with with Putin you get a lot of talk about the enemies of the people um and with Trump he actually uses that phrase sometimes which is is Stalin's and um and and then various things or really almost anything is justified in those terms the other thing of, of, that is similar is that truth no longer matters. And this is something that, that Orwell was very focused on, that it goes beyond the, like the normal mistakes and sloppiness of journalism and the, you know, the, the way 
politicians, you know, politicians inevitably distort the truth in order to make themselves look good and their opponents look bad into a realm where there's people will continue to assert things that have been proven multiple times to be factually false, that they will invent things from whole cloth that never existed, that they will make that they will tell stories which are on the face of them absurd and could not be true. And the masses, you know, their people not only go along with it, but in some way enjoy it more than a plausible story. Sandra, it goes without saying, Big Brother was male, um, Orwell was male, Stalin was male, maybe leave Orwell out of it, but Modi, Putin, Trump, a male. Is that just coincidental? No I, no, I don't think so. I don't know if there's ever been a really successful um, female totalitarian leader. And there's something, I think even if there were, there would there would be something essentially patriarchal about the movement. It's like, I don't, I think that totalitarianism it's it's something to do with the the way that the logic works the idea of power and subjugation the pleasure in humiliating the weak that goes with totalitarianism it seems to naturally end up with the masculine figure being surrounded by men <laughs> you know the like trump it was it was really remarkable like at a certain point everyone in the cabinet was male and nobody even remarked on it because it just seemed to to go without saying in a in a way that Trump would end up there. So so there there is something you know masculinist about it, and the rhetoric is always like about about masculinity and very masculine coded. So is that where I mean Bethan thinks that you outclassed Orwell? Maybe not just because you're a better writer or a smarter person, because you're female. And, and Orwell's treatment of 1984 was through men, through Winston Smith. Uh, is, is there something in that that it's, it's not possible to get to the heart of totalitarianism with a male writer and a, and a, and, and a central male figure like Winston Smith? No, I don't you think You need so. a Julia. I don't think so. I think the two books complement each other, actually. Like I'm not, <laughs> like I'm flattered that Bethan thinks that, but I, I don't. I don't really think that and my book is better than Orwell. Um, and I do think that Orwell, for all that he wasn't very good, he wasn't very good at stopping and wondering what women were really thinking. I think is is the main thing. And and I think that he had an attitude that 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 wasn't part of literature. That literature was about men. Um, so, and I, I don't think that was a very uncommon attitude, although he was an extreme case. But I think you can still say an awful lot about totalitarianism and the mentality of totalitarianism when you're just focusing on the masculine experience of it. And, you know, the fact that something is left out doesn't mean that all of that is worthless. Sandra, we had... Um... Margaret Atwood on the show a year or two ago. Her book, Handmaid's Tale, of course, is, a, is, a, is another classic. Do you think your version of 1984 
um, is different from Atwood's Handmaid's Tale? I, I assume you've read that one and, and you must have thought about it as you were writing this, this book, Julia. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not that, it's not that similar to it really. You don't see the, 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 the sort of a, a totalitarian system built around maleness and a, a cult of fecundity as being similar. I don't mean that you're stealing from Atwood in any way. I'm simply saying that uh, you're, you're writing on similar themes, a dystopian yeah. themes of, 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 me, of, of male rule and a, and, a, and a patriarchal totalitarianism. Well, I think that, um, I mean, I take the point there is, I don't know that there's a cult of fecundity in, in the party of 1984, but I do think, I mean, I do think like the two books are compared and I think it's partly because there's, I mean, it's partly just because The Handmaid's Tale is, is so much in everyone's mind right now. But also I, I think that the fact of, of women's fertility is so often excluded from literature and this is sort of what I was talking about with Orwell is that it's kind of a given that that certain facts about women's lives, even though they're they're really central to all of our everyday experience, like that having children and like the risk of pregnancy and things like that are just assumed not to be part of literature. And if you make them part of literature, then it's a particular genre. And that can mean that Handmaid's Tale and Julia are are somehow equivalent just because they are both dystopias that include pregnancy and have it as a plot point. Um, but no, you're, it's true that there's kind of, I mean, there isn't forced pregnancy in the party, but there is more like government interference in fertility um, than even, you know, the likes of DeSantis would impose on us. So so I, I can't. Yeah, and there is a, a sort of a, some some stuff about abortion or, or sort of the, a totalitarian version in the book. Yeah, but, you know, that's kind of like, again, it's it's sort of, you know, I, I guess that that I feel like women's experience, like both women's experience with regard to fertility, including abortion and miscarriage and and so on is is now like central enough to our literature and dystopias are central enough to our literature that, you know, yeah. And it's not that I'm trying to dissociate myself from Handmaid's Tale because I think it's a great book. Like it's a really great book and I, I've read it a couple of times and I love it, but I just, I just actually don't think the two books are that similar. Well, you've been very generous with time. One more question, um, Sandra, uh, come back to sex. The, the New York Times review, which, as you said, seemed a little unfair on the book, it seemed rather puritanical. You, you, she didn't seem the, the it was a, a female reviewer. She didn't seem to like your Julia because she she loved having sex. But I wonder whether having sex is a is the most effective resistance against totalitarianism. I remember Zola writing about this, and of course, much of the anti-Stalinist and anti-Soviet literature in Eastern Europe, particularly in Czechoslovakia, focused on sex as a form of rebellion. Is that the one effective way that we can resist totalitarianism? And is that how Julia ultimately resisted? She was much more, as you say, a much, much more effective 
resistor of totalitarianism than the rather saintly Winston Smith? Well, you know, again, I don't, I don't think that actually is how Julia ultimately resists, ultimately resists the party in my book. Yeah, don't give away the story. But, yeah, I'm not going to, but, but, but I do think like sex as sex and intimacy in general as a form of resistance are very important in Orwell and in a lot of the literature of the time. And one of the most important things about that, it's not, it's just not, it's not just about the sex, although that the reality of physicality is like the ability to attend to your senses, to what, to what's real, to what's actually in front of you instead of what you're told is important. And then the ability to have intimate relationships and to care about another person um, and to form relationships with a person where you care about them more than you care about the party, which is exactly what the party in, in 1984 is trying most of all to prevent is important and sex is part of that. So some of it is just, you know, Sex, sex, and the family, and relations between people that are that are total and absolute, instead of having like this intellect, you know, this ideology that is total and absolute. That's important to Orwell, and I think that that also is important in my book.